Unpacked podcast where we seek to simplify big ideas on faith, life, and leadership by having conversations with those who know stuff to help simplify things for the rest of us. Well, welcome to episode number 28 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I'm the host, and I hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. The Bible It's a big book. It's filled with lots of words, lots of stories, and lots of tweetable phrases. But not just a book, but really a library of books. It has history, poetry, revelation, and above all, it makes these grandiose promises about life and the afterlife. And not only is it a big book, but there is a big gap between the average reader today and the ancient author then, leaving many people with a lot of questions. And you couple that with a world of biblical scholarship and what is being said and taught about the Bible, it, for many people it feels like an even bigger gap than the ancient world. And one of the things that I have observed in my own life is that there are tons of people who have had some pretty big questions about the Bible, but they've been delved some pretty shallow answers. And as a result, Christians not being informed by some of the complexity in Scripture, what scholarship is saying, and the questions that everyday people are asking about the Bible, many people have actually found Scripture not trustworthy, which as a Christian who loves scripture, this is heartbreaking because not only is the Bible captivating in its message, it is reliable and relevant for our life today. And today my guest with me is a Bible scholar who has taken the time to simplify some big Bible topics and big Bible questions in a way that is current with scholarship, down to earth at our level, and hopeful in that it helps believers get a better grasp on the Bible that we hold. My guest with me is Michael Bird. Mike is a biblical scholar and an Anglican priest who is the academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He and I had a chance to um, sit down and talk about his most recent book called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. So let's jump into my conversation with Mike. I'm really excited to have uh, Michael Bird on our podcast. Michael, welcome. Hello, Scholar. Thank you for having me, and hello to all of your listeners. Well, Michael, um, I, I know a little bit about you, but um, uh, can you share you know, who you are, uh, what do you do, and uh, maybe a little bit of brief background to how you came uh, to faith in Jesus? Yeah, well, I'm Mike Bird. I'm a, the academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. I, you know, I'm an Anglican priest. I've written a few books, Evangelical Theology, what Christians ought to believe, commentaries on Romans and Philippians and Colossians and that type of thing. I came to faith uh, despite coming from a non-Christian uh, family. Uh, when, when I was in the army of all places, I kind of you know went along to a church for the first time out of boredom and it was you know very different and I heard the good news of Jesus and gave my life to Christ and I've you know, been a Christian ever since. And I got into theological education after going through seminary and, and uh, graduate studies at university. So that's that in like 10 seconds is basically the story. Okay, okay. Now, you um, you grew up in Germany, in, is that right? In... Uh, not quite. I was born in Germany, but I was there for like about six months. <laughs> okay. So 
Great uh, memories, so my, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, so my uh, my father was in the British Army. He was stationed there, so that's why I was there. I was other, otherwise, when I was about four years old, my parents divorced and I came to Australia with my mother and I grew up in Australia. Okay, okay. Oh, very cool. Now, um, you guys have a book coming out, but before you, uh, we kind of talk about your book, I got wind um, that you are a huge fan of coffee and drinking coffee, all things coffee. Is that true? Uh, that is very not true. That is the <laughs> most untrue thing you could hear. My feelings about coffee are very similar to how Nancy Pelosi feels about Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. Um, can't stand the stuff. Can't stand the taste, the smell. Um, the fact that other people drink it so no not a coffee fan <laughs> all right i just i had to ask i i i heard that you um you have a very passionate uh, hate toward coffee and so i thought i would ask that well anyways uh mike you have a bird uh you have a bird you have a book coming out um uh by the time this airs it will already be um uh, being sold um but it's called seven things about the bible i wish christians knew uh, can you share a little bit about this book and maybe some of the reasons why you wrote it and uh, what you hope to see happen uh, as a result? Yeah, I mean, this is a book I wrote because Christians can end up dealing with the same sort of misunderstandings about the Bible, and they often have the same type of questions about the Bible. So, you know, you, you, you may deal with someone who thinks, like, you know, wasn't the Bible invented by Constantine in the fourth century? Or, you know, didn't the Dead Sea Scrolls disprove all that stuff? I mean, this is stuff that I hear yeah. uh, every now and now and again uh, in Australia. Uh, so that's so, so you get questions, you get questions about the Bible for Christians from, you know, the, the more secular, you know, religiously illiterate world, mostly. Yeah. But then you have questions that even Christians have. Like, you know, we, we believe the Bible is true, but in what sense is it true? Is it only true at a theological level or spiritual level? Is it true at a literary level, a historical level? You know, in, in what sense is it true or what sense is it not untrue? And then there's that, there's all those big I words like inerrancy and infallibility. And you've got to, you've got to kind of deal with them, if you like. And then what are some good tips for interpreting the Bible? You know, um, you know, I, I don't know anything about Bible interpretation. What's a few good tips? Uh, I also show things like, you know, the value of knowing a little bit of historical background. Mm. You know, uh, that's going to be a big help too. how to read the Bible to, to um, uh, sort of, you know, ferment certain virtues in yourself, like faith, hope, love, how to read the Bible in a Jesus centered way. So yeah, I'm, I'm dealing. I'm dealing with with those sorts of things. You know, questions of an apologetic nature. Questions about well, you know, is everything in the Bible authoritative? Like you know, even you know, kill all the Canaanites, kill all the Jebusites. So what do we do with that stuff? So I'm dealing with a whole bunch of complex questions about the Bible that if people knew, uh, they would find themselves less less snookered or less uh, flabbergasted by some questions or simply better resourced in how to use the Bible in their own, in their own life and in their own churches. Man, you know, Mike, I, I, um, I had a chance to kind of read through your book before this conversation 
And I, I just have to tell you, I have I I was not able to put your book down. It was really good. I so thoroughly enjoyed it, and I was telling everybody, you know, you need to pick up uh, this book when it, when it gets released. You know, um, but it's just it's it was so refreshing to me. Um, you know, just when you when you dive into some scholarship on you know origin of the Bibles and stuff like that, it um, it can get it can get the water can get a little bit murky. And um, I just found your book so refreshing. Um, to to approach some of those big questions um, that is not necessarily academic. It is academic, but it's not as heavy in the jargon um, that gets thrown around. But it's very it's very um, user friendly, if you will. Um, as you're kind of preparing this f for this book, this project that you had, was there any like new insight or anything new that stuck out to you in the, when you were writing the book? Well, there's a, a number of things you, you kind of learn. Um, I guess for me, the uh, one of the things is is going through some some of the bits, particularly the Old Testament, mm. that you know that by our standards now we would consider affronting, like you know, like when you go to war with another nation or another tribe, what do you do with the prisoners of war? And you know, like you know, you you can take some of the women as wives that type of thing. And I mean, what do you do with that stuff? You know, so you've got, you've got to wrestle with that stuff. I mean, you know, basically, you know, God is instructing the Israelites in how to conduct ancient Near Eastern warfare, mm. you know, and you've got to say, look, this stuff is not ideal, but it's simply about the dirt, the bile, the vomit of the ancient world. It's the ugly side of the ancient world. And this is and this is how you have to live within that. I mean, if, if, if you're living in something like a sewer of human hate, crime and wickedness, this is how you navigate your way through that sewer. Okay, okay I'm using a, an analogy there from um, William Webb. But it's, it's so wrestling with that stuff, I think, is very heavy. And, and you, you really need some discernment and some thoughtfulness as you do that. The other thing that really struck me in writing this book was how Paul says in kind of like a throwaway line in, in Romans 15. I mean, he's talking about other stuff and he just adds this throwaway line that the, the purpose of scripture is that through them, you know, through the, through the perseverance that they provide, that we would have hope. Okay. So one of the goals of scripture, of Bible reading, of listening to sermons, okay, or doing Bible study is to give us, you know, hope. You know, that's one of the main one of the main goals of Scripture is so that people would have hope that God is for them. God is with them and God loves them in Christ and the spirit. So th those are probably the, the two biggest things. You know, there's a, a lot of refresher things for me. You know, a, a few other things I could go into, like, you know, uh, you know, why it's good to know a bit of historical background, that kind of stuff. But those are the two things, you know, wrestling with the real tricky Old Testament stuff. And then reminding us that, you know, scripture is it's not there to be dissected. It's not there to be d debated over that. The main purpose of scripture is to give God's people hope. Mm. Man, that's good. That's good. Um, I love that. Now, um, you have seven chapters in your book. Uh, each of those chapters is a loaded, loaded chapter with so much packed in there. Um, I would love, if you wouldn't mind, and as time allows, I would love for you to walk through each of those chapters, um, just kind of highlighting what they're about, you know, um, what is some of the faulty assumptions that you see Christians have on the subject, what what points are you trying to argue, and, you know, really, yeah. ultimately, what's at stake with each of the chapters? 
Well, each chapter is trying to do something, you know, very specific. You know, for example, the first chapter is basically how we got the Bible. So, you know, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky, bound in leather, written in ye old English with Schofield footnotes delivered by angels into your lap. Okay. So you, you've got to talk about, you know, where your Bible came from, both the, uh, the canonization, how we get the, you know, the Old Testament, how we get the New Testament, how it was put together by Jewish and Christian communities. Then you want to look at something of the um, creation of the English Bible as well. Yeah. And, you know, all the things that go on there, just so Christians know where the Bible is come, came from. Uh, the second thing I think we've then got to look at is, well, in what sense is the Bible both a divine book and a human book? Because you know, it's given by God, but it's given through uh, human authors. And you, you can't treat the Bible that's so divine that it ceases to be human because, you know, it's written in human language and there's human traits and human proclivities within it. But you can't say it's merely a, a, a human book about religious musings about God. And this is where we talk about things like inspiration. So what, what does it mean to say that God inspires human authors? You know, is, is God inspiring them in the same way a rose inspires a poet? Or does like Matthew go into his room, sit at his desk, go into a trance and then wake up with the gospel of Matthew in front of him? You know, what, what do we mean by that? And then derivative of that in what sense is the bible true and then you've got the other i word is it inerrancy or infallibility that type of thing then thirdly i want to say the big issue uh that we have to discuss is whether the bible is in any sense normative uh, you know whatever debate about the bible you may have in your church like you know i believe in full inerrancy or i believe in quasi inerrancy or you know those debates are not happening in the wider culture in the mainstream church and in the culture around us, the real debate is, can or should the Bible be authoritative for anything? Mm. You know, given that you know, a lot of it is written in, in a patriarchal culture of the ancient Near East and, and and Rome and that type of thing, can the Bible in any way be normative? And some people say, well, yes, but as long as you just take out all the bits that are nice and progressive. So, you know, we'll, we'll find think think of the Bible as like a dead body. We'll take out some of the nice progressive organs and then we can recycle them in our own way. Uh, I'm going to say, no, the, the real the real issue is how you treat the Bible as authoritative. Uh, of course, that comes with some complexity because not everything in the Bible is directly applicable today. I don't think we should be conducting warfare along the same lines of, you know, the ancient Near East as you, as you find in the Book of Kings or the Book of Samuel, that type of thing. The fourth thing I talk about is the importance of historical background. You know, the Bible is for us, but it's not written to us. And if you want to understand certain things in the Bible, you, you need to know uh, a bit of background. Like, you, I mean, you need to know a little bit of geography, you know, where is Caponium, that type of thing. Uh, what was a king in the, what, what did kingship mean in the context of ancient Israel? Uh, what did people believe about God and the gods plural? I mean, why would... Why would Jews have a problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols? What is a Pharisee? I mean, you, you need to know a little bit of background. In other words, yeah. you, everyone needs a kind of Philip to run beside their chariot yeah, to kind yeah. of help them explain. And and, and you, you, you need a bit of history. Now, that creates a little bit of a um, um, concern for some people because they think if you're too reliant on history, that means you, you kind of have a priesthood of scholars who become the arbiters of truth. So you've got to deal with that kind of anxiety that people will have. Mm. 
The fifth thing I want to look at is, is, is how to interpret the Bible. And I tell people, look, you need to take the Bible seriously, not always literally. Mm. Now, you know, some people just want to say, well, you always take the Bible literally, no matter what, you know, which you know breaks down when Jesus says, you know, I am the true vine. No, I don't think yeah. he is literally. And, and no one would, no one would believe that even, even the pulpit pounding fundamentalists would not take that literally, but there are parts of the Bible. Uh, which is certainly open to a more figurative or allegorical interpretation. I mean, Paul explicitly says this in Galatians 4. He says these things, these two mountains, you know, Hagar and Sarah, they are to be taken allegorically. Uh, John the Seer in Revelation, he talks about certain things being taken figuratively. Uh, and there's all sorts of things in the Bible. It's, it's really about taking the Bible seriously, understanding its genre, understanding the way it's meant to work, understand how text carry meaning i mean the very debate i mean what is meaning i mean what does it mean to say a text means something i mean that that is something i try to explain yeah. as well uh six i talk about the purpose of scripture which is coming to the point of knowledge of god deeper faith greater love for god and neighbor and then as i said before uh, really kindling in and sustaining our hope and then seventh i finally address the topic how do we see christ as the center of the bible because, you know, if you go to Luke 24, you've got the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus explaining to the, you know, the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. He said, you know, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself. So Jesus was reading his Old Testament in a sort of Christ-centered fashion, seeing it as prophetically pointing to him. But how do we do that? And how do we do that like the apostles did? So there's a, there's a few issues there. At the same time, you know, there, there is a danger because you can end up doing some really cheesy, you know, <laughs> Jesifying of everything. And there's a lot in the Old Testament, especially, that is there for our instruction. It's there for our own wisdom. And it's not a kind of blatantly, you know, Christ-centered reading. But it's still, it's still important and still necessary for a healthy diet of, you know, of Bible reading and preaching and teaching. So that, in a nutshell, is the the seven things that I that I deal with. Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, each one of those is just fantastic, and I and I loved. You know, I, I don't know if 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 you're if you want to go into detail, but um, I thought you know the the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. You know, as the opening chapter was so good, and then when you follow that up with the um, the discussion about inspiration, inerrancy. Would you, would you mind just kind of unpacking a little bit about, you know, those first couple chapters, um, yep. you know, where the, how do we have the Bible that we have, you know, maybe the process of the English translation and how we got that and, and even why we get wrapped up in these kind of debates uh, of inspiration and inerrancy and maybe, a, yep. maybe a helpful way to approach these as a Christian. Yeah. I, okay. That's, that's, a, that's a probably two good things to focus on. Now, well, the first one on the Bible is I ask students, how do you know which book should be in the Bible? Because God never revealed a kind of table of contents. So how do you know? Yeah. I mean, how, how do you know that the Gospel of Matthew should be in the Bible, but the Gospel of Thomas shouldn't be? Because there, there is a book called the God. I mean, how do you know we should include one or not the other? And I kind of take people through you know, a, a very basic overview of what's called the canonization, how the church reached a consensus over which books should be in its register of, sa of sacred literature. Now, I, I talk a little bit about the Old Testament canon. This is where you have Jewish people largely um, 
holding very strongly to the Torah, the five books of Moses, the prophets and the writings. And there's you know, a little bit of debate about which books should be in the writings. For example, should you have Esther, a book that doesn't mention God? But if, if you look at some of you know, how Jewish authors talked about what they believed was the list of sacred writings, you know, that they generally give you the, the, the books that we find in our Old Testament. Okay, even though the, the Jewish authors tend to order them differently to Christians, it's pretty much the same canon. And you see people like Josephus mentioning that. And then certainly by the time you get to the rabbis in the second century, that there seems to be some consensus uh, about that, even as a little bit fuzzy around the edges. I mean, the people around the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, w- would have books like, you know, Isaiah and the stuff. But they, they, but they would also have some other writings as well that they thought were important, like Jubilees or, or you know, parts of one Enoch and the like. With the, with the New Testament, it seems as if they developed very quickly a consensus around the four Gospels, uh, Paul's letters, plus Hebrews, because Hebrews sounds Pauline enough anyway, uh, and 1 John and 1 Peter. So there was a very quick consensus, okay, these books are definitely, you know, good. They're definitely written by apostles or, or colleagues of the apostles they cohere with the faith that we know, with the type of worship we have, the belief and the doctrines that we celebrate. Then there's a few questions about, you know, what about Second Peter or what about Revelation? Uh, books that people had some questions about, but they said, you know what, generally think we, we think these are the right ones. We believe God speaks to us through these and there's a reasonable consensus about them. And then there were some other books that people said, you know what, I really do like that, but I'm not sure about it. Books like The Shepherd of Hamas, okay? which was a, a somewhat symbolic writing written to exhort the church, particularly in Rome. And then there's a document called the Apocalypse of Peter, which a lot of Christians liked. Um, you know, it, it talked about the final judgment and the justice of God. And then there were some other books that people said, uh, no way, like, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. They said, look, n- no way. I mean, that is, that is a different Jesus. That is like a different religion. And we should not be reading that stuff at all uh, and, and and eventually the church came to what you would say is a um developing consensus on which books should be in its uh in its canon you know it's sort of you know list of sacred uh literature but that that kind of took time to crystallize and develop and so i say you know although the church did not create the word the churches you know the theologians call it creature ver- verba a creature of the word god did use the church to put the word in its canonical location Okay, so that's roughly about the Old and the New Testament. We can have a wonderful debate also about the Apocrypha or the Judo-canonical writings, but that's that's another story in itself. So that that's that's the canon or how we got the Bible, and there's a few other things we could talk about. You know how the Western Church used the Latin Bible, then the mm. gradual translation through the through Wycliffe and the Lollards, and then eventually William Tyndall and and what happened after him. Uh, concerning inerrancy debates. I mean, this has been a massive issue in America, especially since, uh, well, at one degree, since the modernist controversy of the late 19th century, when there were critiques of, of uh, a religion of revelation began mm. to be critiqued, okay? And people said, look, I believe that God created the world, but then he just left it. And, and now what we have is just people in different ways thinking about a divine world or about God. So you can get that. And... In the height of that, in the sort of, you know, you get the 
um, liberal fundamentalist controversy that took shape in the early 20th century. And then the evangelicals split from the fundamentalists. Now, the evangelicals wanted to maintain a high view of scripture. They just didn't want all the baggage of the fundamentalists with their sort of, you know, ethos of separation, their sort of anti-cultural uh, disposition. Evangelicals wanted to engage the culture, but maintain a high view of Christ and a high view of scripture. But even then, even with evangelicalism, you had this kind of battle over the Bible, as it was called, about whether you believed, believed in a hard inerrancy or like a soft inerrancy. And, you know, do you try harmonize all the gospels together? You know, how many, how many blind men did Jesus heal? you know, in Jericho, that type of thing? Or do you say, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, Jesus healed someone. The details don't matter. We say, no, no, the details have to be right. We've got to line up the details. And because if you can't line up the details, it means the Bible's not in inerrant. If it's not inerrant, then you might as well just throw it to the junk heap or something like that. So that, that, those sorts of, you know, debates going on. But one thing I learned uh, following these debates is th often it wasn't about the truthfulness of the Bible or the limits of the truthfulness of the Bible. A lot of the times it was really about culture, power, and the hegemony of a particular tribe in a particular denomination. I mean, the first thing you have to say, this is very American centric, you know, Christians around the world will affirm the truthfulness of the Bible, but they won't pass it down to like the nth degree you know, trying to, to, to stipulate i mean they're not gonna they're not gonna you know excommunicate someone because they believed in soft inerrancy rather than a hard inerrancy you know that that type of thing it's like you know do you believe the bible's true and authoritative yep that's good enough i mean because you know if, if you're a christian in iran or north africa or, or living under communism in china those kind of you know minuscule debates are pretty hard to justify when you've got far bigger foes around the world. So the, 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 around the world, we do not argue about the Bible in the way that Americans do, particularly in American conservatives. But even amongst those conservative circles, I got the feeling that what they're really arguing for is not so much the truth of the Bible, but rather a certain type of church authority. And let me give you a good example of this. And this is what I mentioned in the book good friend of mine, Michael Lacona, wonderful apologist, wrote a great book on, on the resurrection. And then he gets to that tricky passage in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's chapter 27, was it 2752? Yep. When Jesus dies, and all of these saints from the old kind of come out of the tombs. And I mean, what do you do? I mean, do, do you take that literally? Yeah. Is it symbolic? I mean, now he calls it apocalyptic special effects. So I, I do think Matthew has a tendency to sort of uh, project the future into the present. He does that a few different times across his gospel. So, I mean, what do you, I mean, no one mentions this. No other evangelist, Josephus, doesn't mention it. So, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I did this independently. I said, I don't think this should be taken literally. I, I think this is, you know, more of a general um, statement about the life-giving power of, of, of Christ's death. Now, but some people are worried, well, if you take that symbolically, then why don't you take, could you end up taking the resurrection symbolically? And so Lacona argued for this, you know, apocalyptic special effects view. And a lot of people were then attacking him mm. uh, for denying inerrancy. And I thought, hang on. I mean, he's not saying that, well, Matthew was just wrong. Okay. That type of a thing. Mm. Um, that would be, you say, well, look, my, my, Matthew just, is just telling lies at this point. Uh, no, he, he's offering a, a, an interpretation, which, again, is not, not unique, not unprecedented 
in, in the history of the church either. And he's being at, at, at saying he denies. You could, so now you could say his interpretation is wrong. That would be fine. But it was treated as an attack on inerrancy. And that's when it dawned on me that when people preach the inerrancy of their text, they more often than not mean the inerrancy of their interpretation. Uh. And I think that is the real kicker. And they're not so much concerned about the uh, inerrancy of the text, but rather they mean the inerrancy of their particular cultural tribe in a particular context. Mm. Now, whether that's Southern Baptist Convention or Presbyterians or Anglicanism. So it, it goes to show it, it's in some sense, it's more about power than it actually is about a theological discussion. And I, I the, and the more I think about that, the, the, the more I, I see of that. And you could you could also go into debates about women in ministry. And some would say, well, if you let a woman preach, then, you know, you're denying inerrancy. Well, you know, you might disagree with the interpretation that I get from you know, reading Romans 16 and other parts of the New Testament where women do a lot of ministry. Uh, but that's but to treat that as an errancy thing, it, I think that's a category mistake, and it tells us more about you mm, wow. than it does about the actual text that we're discussing. So that's that's probably the the, you know, the, the two opening issues if, of the book about canon and inerrancy that uh, I hope readers will find interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I know there's so much more, you know, after reading those chapters, there's so much more you can go into on that and so many more you know, rabbit trails and everything. And so I just encourage people, if you if you really want to dive deeper into that, um, to, to get your book. So, okay, you know, looking at all seven chapters, um, where do you see any kind of pushback coming from your book? And if, if you foresee some pushback on one of those chapters, what would that be? And what would you like to say to the potential? Um, uh, what would you say in reply to that? Oh, boy. I mean, I, I could see me getting pushed back um, from every possible quarter. There'll be some people who will say that this book is hyper conservative because, you know, you believe in biblical authority. I mean, you, you, you're, you're not a you're not a buffet Baptist. You're not a cafeteria Catholic. You're not picking and choosing the good parts of the Bible. The fact that you believe an authoritative Bible goes to show that you're just peddling neo-fundamentalism. Mm. You know, I, I can see that coming uh, at me. But, you know, I do believe the Bible is an authoritative guide for, for Christian life, uh, how to be a human being. Again, I, I do nuance that a bit, that you can't just jump from, uh, you know, parts of Genesis or, or the books of Kings into the modern day. I mean, you, you shouldn't be ruling a country the way that David ruled Israel um, in whatever century it, it is. Yes, yeah, so I, I try to nuance this, but I do believe the Bible is an authority. Uh, then there'll be people who will be a little bit um, concerned or maybe have their nose at a joint that, you know, I do not think that biblical inerrancy is the center of the universe. Okay. <laughs> okay. That, you know, um, uh, I'm not one of those. We, we love Jesus because he led us to inerrancy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not that, that, that type. I, you know, I love, I love the Bible. Uh, I'm a biblical scholar. I'm a you know, professional Bible nerd. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, you know, my doctrine of scripture is there to serve my doctrine of God. Mm. And you can't, you shouldn't have a higher view of scripture than you have a higher view of God wow. or Jesus. Uh, because you know, remember, you know, the the apostle John said in the, you know, the uh, uh, in the beginning was the word, you know, and the word became flesh. Um, he didn't say the word became uh, a doctrine. He didn't say the word, um, you know, became you know 
this particular uh, committee, you know, and, and the risen Jesus says, you know, he, well, he doesn't say all authority is given to the books that you will write. He says all authority is given to me. And we've got to remember that we keep Christology foremost, our, our belief and our worship and our devotion to Christ is foremost, and our doctrine of Scripture will always be subservient to that. Now, I don't think these two things should ever be brought into conflict, because, you know, it's, it's, it's as I've said, it's the, it's the word that attests to Christ, and Jesus himself had a high view of Scripture. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't have a view of Scripture different to what Jesus had. But I, I really think we need to make sure we've got the right hierarchy or the right, maybe a hierarchy is the wrong word, maybe the, the, the right kind of, um, uh, we're, put, we're putting the cake together in the right order, if you know what I mean. I mean, you don't bake the flour without adding the eggs or, or, or that type of thing. So that, that, that's why I want to make sure that we've got our doctrine of scripture right, but we're also putting it in the right order. Mm, that's good. That's good. I love it. Um, well, uh, Mike, is there any last things that you want us to just kind of add about your book and uh, maybe the Bible? Uh, yeah, well, I just hope this book really helps people uh, be able to enjoy the Bible more, have more confidence in the Bible, and be more equipped to speak and rejoice about the Bible in a public mm. context. I mean, the Bible has stood the test of time. It is like granite. Uh, look, in 200 years, I don't know whether anyone will be reading Harry Potter, but in 200 years, people will still be reading the Bible, I promise you. Mm, that's awesome. And Mike, uh, where can people pick uh, the book up? And um, if people wanted to learn a little bit more about you, is there a good place they can go to um, connect with you or um, uh, look, look you up? Yeah, the best place to, to get a copy of the book is probably through uh, Zondervan's webpage. So if you can, it's always better if you buy directly from the uh, publisher. You know, Jeff Bezos has got enough money, if you ask me. Uh, but if it's convenient, you can probably get it through Amazon. Uh, the best way to follow me, you can get me on Twitter at Ember12, or you can um, sign up for a newsletter I pull out, put out through michaelfbird.substack.com. Mm, that's awesome. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to talk with us about your book. Really, really, really excited. It's going to be a book that um, I would definitely pass on to people so that they can get um, a base level understanding and a deep understanding of the Bible beyond um, maybe the children's Sunday school um, of what they've kind of grew up or if they don't have any familiarity. So anyways, Mike, thanks so much for, uh, for talking, talking with us on our podcast. Well, Skylar, thank you very much for having me, and a big thank you to all your listeners for joining us. As someone who is trying to get a better understanding about the Bible and the questions that people are asking about the Bible, questions like, uh, how do we get the Bible? How should we interpret the Bible? Uh, how is Scripture both a divine word and a human word? I have found um, this book very informative and very helpful. Uh, so thank you, Michael, uh, for taking the, your morning, uh, my evening, to talk, uh, talk with us uh, all the way from Australia um, about your book. And if you'd like more information about Mike, his book, or even where to find him on Twitter, be sure to check out the show notes at the end of this interview. Well, I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact with your life. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.